Hi, I'm Victor Milligan, your host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. And on the phone with us today is senior analyst Ying Berry from Sydney to discuss the digital financial services state of affairs in Asia Pacific. Welcome, Ying. Hi, Victor. Thank you for having me. Sure, it's great to have you here. So I know we just completed a major body of work looking at demand for digital services and how that market plays in response to that. Can you give me how that story begins in terms of the demand for digital across Asia-Pac? Right. Um, I think, Victor, maybe I would kind of take a step back and um, look at what we are seeing across Asia-Pacific. And one of the major findings that we have, um, it has to do with how consumer behavior is evolving. So we looked at segmenting some of these customers or consumers across Asia-Pacific, and we looked at how empowered they are across um, the different segments. The most empowered segment, we call them the progressive pioneers, and they are the ones who are really experimenting with new technologies and devices, and they're always ahead of the curve. They lead the demand for product or experience innovation. And very interestingly, that percentage of customers who are progressive pioneers, it's quite high in Asia-Pacific. To give you a bit of an idea or context of what I'm talking about here is that 85% and 81% of customers in metropolitan mainland China and metropolitan India, they are progressive pioneers. If we compare that to the U.S., we're talking about just 25% who are progressive pioneers. So you can see that it is a much more empowered type of segment that we're talking about across Asia Pacific. And do you have a sense of what's behind that? Is that a generational question? Is that a demographic question? Why would we see such a spread in Asia Pac versus using your example, the United States? Yeah, I think it has a lot to do with how consumers across Asia Pacific, they have leapfrogged um, the desktop or laptop and they have jumped straight to using the smartphone to either talk to their friends or go shopping online or to do transactions on the mobile phones or the desktop or laptop computers. So that has a big um, impact on their behaviors and how they want to interact with different firms. And you're not talking strictly banking. I mean, this is across the gambit of financial services to include life insurance and other insurance as well. This is not strictly banking transactions. No. Um, we do see that, you know, in certain countries, um, if we come, if we talk about life insurance, um, digital channels are surprisingly the preferred channel for certain countries such as, you know, China, Thailand, India, and Australia. But... Um, as we look across Southeast Asia, Asians are still the preferred way for countries like Singapore and Malaysia. So although we see that consumer behavior is rapidly evolving across Asia Pacific, um, we do see nuances when it comes to how they evolve and also how it plays out across different sectors. In the discussion that I have been in on this topic, there's sort of this funny little equation that comes sometimes to the fore in the progressive pioneers and the idea that they're not they themselves are not carrying wealth. So they might be annoying, they might be signals of the future, but they're not inherently disruptive because they don't bring the wealth. Is that true here or are they, you know, they're bringing wealth into the game so they, they will affect in the very near term the very nature of the markets? 
Yeah, I think you're right to say that, you know, for these progressive pioneers, they are probably not um, the type that um, most of the incumbent firms are considered to be the affluent um, sector, and um, they are not to be seen to be um, those that they will want to, you know, target in that sense, the most profitable segment of customers. But um, what we do see is that instead of looking at consumers based on just their age or their gender, um, there's also the necessity to look at customers or consumers as how they behave and which type of segments that they want to interact, um, they want to um, look at, you know, how they want to interact with you. So um, you could see that someone who is 55-year-old could be more digitally savvy or as digitally savvy as someone who say, who might be in the 35-age group. So um, we do see that, you know, it is about looking at their behaviors and how they change and to also prepare for the future where progressive pioneers will become a more significant part of the banks or the insurers or the wealth management firms, customer base. So just to give you an idea as well, um, in Australia, we look at, you know, who would con- constitute a significant portion of the big four banks. And um, the progressive pioneers actually represent a very significant share of most of the big four banks' um, hmm. customer base. And just in staying with uh, customer behavior and linking it to the regulatory structure to which these customers exist in, you know, mainland China... Australia, India, Thailand, Singapore, Malaysia, these are different kind of governments, different kinds of ways of thinking of the financial sector. How do you kind of think about the idea that there's commonality of the consumer behavior across arguably very different climates of which they they, they live and operate in? Yeah, I would say that they are all quite different in the sense that um, if we look at countries like India and China, um, you, you're looking at more than 80% of consumers who are progressive pioneers. But if you look at a country like Australia, um, that percentage is much lower. So mm-hmm. we're talking about progressive pioneers that represent only 25% of the entire Australian online population. So it, it is a very stark difference in the contrast to some of these other countries where consumers have gone on straight to the smartphone instead of um, going on to laptops or desktops. That being said, um, in Australia, we see that the progressive pioneer segment is the one that has recorded the largest growth in the past three years. And that is quite significant too, as we see this segment to grow continually. So as you see this, you know, rising tide or ground swell of digital demand, this will, or maybe is already having an effect on the competitive landscape of banks. I mean, in many arenas, you have essentially a, an, a building skepticism of institutions, which could you could argue disadvantages some of the traditional banks. You have a growing desire or um, growing ability to experiment, whether that's in the retail arena or whether in the banking or insurance arena. So how does that reshape or create the beginning of reshaping the way that the financial sectors exist in these different countries? Yeah, I think we're now in a very exciting time um, when it comes to, you know, looking at uh, what's happening in the financial services sector. So um, 
we saw that, you know, we've seen that regulators in Hong Kong and Singapore and Australia, they are releasing digital banking licenses and we expect other markets to follow in their footsteps. So we're now at this very critical juncture where, firstly, you know, we are seeing the rise of empowered customers and there are, a lot of them are looking at um, experimenting with new services, new products, and they want to experiment with these types of experiences. And second is that the regulators are opening up um, the market to more competition and to bring in this new or new banks or new insurers into um, the different countries and the different markets. And guess what? You know, these are um, the segment of customers that these digital-only players are targeting. And it's kind of interesting because if you look at the banking sector 10, 15 years ago, they would be very recognizable banks or very recognizable insurers. But if you look at it now or five years from now, you have the traditional banks, WeChat, you have Google, Samsung, all of these players coming in from different markets. Is it just that people are relating financial well-being to lifestyle, so therefore it's giving non-financial entities a wedge into the marketplace? Yeah, I think you touched on a very important point. And this is where we're seeing this blurring of lines where, um, you know, is this a bank or is this a retail company or is it a technology company? Um, and we are seeing a whole host of different players coming into these markets across Asia Pacific. So um, one, of the, one of such players would be Grab. And Grab operates across Southeast Asia and Malaysia, Singapore, Indonesia. And the competitor is called Gojek. And they also operate across Southeast Asia. So Grab and Gojek is the equivalent of Uber in the U.S. And these are the players that have gone into e-wallet offerings or um, digital wallet offerings. They are selling insurance. They are looking at other types of wealth management products for their customers. And they are quite well positioned to do so because they do have an existing customer base. And they are tapping into um, this existing customer base to expand into adjacent industries. And also, interestingly, is that consumers are letting these players into their lives. Um, when we ask the question of, you know, who do you consider to help you improve your financial well-being? And we see that, you know, quite a significant number of consumers do trust um, technology companies to provide those services for them. Yeah, it was interesting. Just on that last point, you had said that in some cases they trust some of these new payment and tech players more than the traditional bank, which is sort of a surprising outcome given that, you know, in this case, banks have been have been built upon the bedrock of trust. Yeah, yeah. Um, we would, I would say that, you know, in most of the Asia-Pacific countries, the bank is still the number one um, the number one company or institution that consumers trust. It's only in India where we see that um, consumers actually trust Google more than they trust their bank. Um, and very interestingly, too, is that players like WeChat and Apple uh, seem to be you know, the top three type of institutions that they trust to keep their money safe and their data safe. Um, so we do see this shift where there is this attack of war or a battle um, amongst ride-sharing apps, um, banks, insurers, 
superannuation or wealth management firms to help customers manage their money and keep them in control of their lives. So one of the goals of a traditional player, a bank wants you to stay with them through your life stages. It's not strictly, you know, savings or checkings. It's through buying a house and other types of loans. And, you know, arguably a customer becomes profitable only upon going through several products. In life insurance, it's obviously the marriage of life and wealth. So there's always a desire to consolidate the customer's financial transactions to that entity. But here, this is describing the fracturing of that, meaning these players like Grab or Gojek or others, they're going to take a piece of the puzzle, but not the whole puzzle. Are the customers okay with the idea that they will transact or work with several entities in a financial way? Yeah, I think um, ultimately, if we think about, you know, what's the role that banks or insurers or wealth management firms do, it is it is to pro- they, they are there to provide a means to an end. They don't necessarily provide the eventual product or service that consumers want. And um, they, they are, they facilitate those type of transactions to go through. So from a consumer's point of view, it doesn't really matter um, who is going to take that role or to, to be the prominent provider for those type of services because they want um, at the end of the whole transaction that particular product or service. So what's important here is that they have to trust um, that provider who will enable those transactions, but it's not top of mind for them in a sense that payments just need to be seamless and easy and secure, and that's what they would think about. And if we look at you know a provider or a technology company like Apple, um, with their partnership with Goldman Sachs with the Apple Card, um, they are looking to really transform the banking industry where because consumers can look at you know redeeming or getting cashback rewards at the point of sale, and these are the things that they essentially want. And Apple is there to enable that, um, and consumers are happy to use it as long as it's something that they want. So I think at what we're talking about here is also what is the what is the experience or, or the differentiation or um, the different types of innovative services or products that um, these institutions can provide for customers going forward. So I'm going to take a step back. Is it your take that the the governments and the regulators wanted this outcome? They wanted this deeper, more complex, competitive state, and so they triggered it and the consumers followed? Or is it your take the consumers sort of went into it and catalyzed something that the regulators are probably playing catch-up to? Like, what what came first in the Asia back? And I'm going to turn our attention to the other theaters of Europe and uh, North America. Yeah, I think it's a combination of both. Um, and there are uh, a number of factors playing here. And the first is, like you rightly mentioned, you know, consumers are getting more empowered. At the same time, um, in these countries, the regulators are also getting requests or they're also getting pressure by a lot of these smaller players who want to start something new. And in these countries like Singapore and Hong Kong and Australia, they the governments also have the ambition to enable innovation and to spur different types of new services and products um, across the different markets. And um, with 
open banking coming into the picture, it is also one way for them to push the incumbent firms to um, move towards that type of future where consumers would want to be in control, they want more choice, they want to have the best result for themselves. And um, if we look at a country like Australia, where um, a lot of the banks and insurance firms and wealth management firms, they went through a very tough time through the Royal Commission because there there were findings where um, these financial institutions, they were found to not do the right thing by their customers whether it's about um, charging fees to uh, customers who are who are not alive, or um, or charging customers um, fees for advice that was never given, so it is also a way to keep um, not just the competition in check, but also to make sure that some of these players are doing the right thing by by customers. And if you look at the digital only financial services firms. Um, a strong part of what they do and what they believe in is to make sure that they are doing the right thing by their customers. So now I'm going to bring us to the global stage because the the picture that you painted in terms of the competitive state is in some cases the intended state coming out of PST2 in Europe and some of the open banking, which is more driven by market triggers in, let's say, the U.S. I think Canada is looking as to how to bring open banking into this arena so in your mind, what is the lessons learned from Asia-Pac that are possibly applicable and appropriate as, as Europe, as North America dabbles in the early parts of open banking? Right. I would say that um, in the markets across Asia-Pacific, um, open banking is something that banks or insurers or wealth management firms are looking at. I wouldn't say that. I would say that the Europe or the UK is probably much far ahead um, than some of the, the firms here. And um, in these markets, you know, these firms are looking to the UK to see where the learnings are. Hmm. Um, that being said, um, the institutions here across the region are also looking at, you know, what is our strategy as we head towards the open banking environment? We have a split of different camps where some see it as, you know, we just have to comply and um, not have a very strategic view of that. But you have others who see it as a strategic competitive advantage where they want to be seen as the trusted data custodian for their customers. And when that comes into place, um, they their customers will look to them to share their data and services with other providers because we see that, you know, with some of the data breaches across the region, um, data security and privacy is one of the main concerns for, for some of the customers. So I'm DBS in Singapore, I'm McCreary in Australia, and I see this unfold in front of me. And I look at the whiteboards and I look at a competitive landscape that is complex and, and probably going to get more complex. What is, what is our advice to the banks that actually do have a good footprint and have built digital capabilities? What is, the, what is their strategy to sort of protect what they've already won or gain back and from a digital standpoint? Right. I think first and foremost, um, institutions or incumbent firms, they have to look at where are their strengths and where are their capabilities where they think that they have a strategic competitive advantage. And then to look at their customer base and to see, you know, which one, 
where do they play and how are, what are sort of the experiences that their customers want. Um, we are heading towards the future of some of, where some of these incumbent firms, they cannot go it alone and they cannot continue to keep building things themselves. They have to think about the future where customer expectations are always going to continue to rise and what is their strategy going forward in terms of partnering with different providers? Are they going to be a curator of, of experiences for customers? Are they going to be a platform for other providers? Are they going to orchestrate the experience themselves? So I think these are these are the questions that they should ask themselves. And um, we see that you know the marketplace model or a platform business is one of the um, up and coming or, or future of the future business model for for the banking sector. But at the same time, we don't believe that every incumbent firm will be able to carry that out or to build that out themselves because not all um, incumbent firm will be will have the capability to do so. So here we are, we're sitting in 2019. And as you described it, the consumers are on the move. The trends are pretty strong, going to get stronger. The market is responding. You're seeing a lot of people innovate. What does it look like in 2021, 2022? Yeah, um, I think that the gap between the leaders and the laggards will widen. So as we see consumers changing and evolving, their behaviors are um, really rapidly evolving. Um, some of the incumbent firms will either take a very skeptical view of changes in the market and think that, you know, this is not something to be worried about, or they will want to um, be ahead of the curve. So in, in two or three years' time, what we will see is that the leaders will be the ones who are very much customer-led. They are the ones who will provide contextualized real-time experiences for customers, which, is, which are very smart type of experiences. And they are also able to measure what that means for customer experience. Ting, I so much appreciate you getting on the phone with me um, today. And it was a, just a total pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. Thank you, Victor. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.